want to say a, a special double welcome to you. We are glad uh, that you are here. Um, we're actually going to be picking up, continuing our study in the book of John. We've been in John for almost two years now. Um, we're going to be in chapter 20. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. You can turn them on. You can flip over to that. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, you can look down into the racks in front of you and grab one of those. Uh, and if you don't actually own a Bible, feel free to take that one as a gift from us to you. We know that you'll be blessed in your time uh, reading it. But where we, where we are kind of um, picking up uh, in today's message, my wife was very excited for this Sunday to finally come. Um, that's less about me actually getting up here and preaching and her hearing from me again. Uh, but in her own words, she said, I feel like we've been killing Jesus for like six weeks now. When are we finally going to get to see him alive? And it's actually a very apt kind of sentiment that probably all of us should have because it's not just six weeks. Uh, in fact, everything in the book of John has been building up to this cross moment. Uh, even when we think back to the very beginning, the sections in which we broke down the overall um, book that he was writing, the first 12 chapters are entirely dealing with his public ministry. Um, where he is going out and displaying signs and wonders and teachings about uh, who he is as, uh, as a Christ figure. Then he had a repeated phrase that he used during his public ministry where he said, uh, my hour has not yet come. Even then, everything was being orchestrated in his mind, marching towards the cross. Then in the next five chapters, we pick up Jesus' Jesus's private ministry and in Jesus' private ministry, we saw this amazing switch in his language, where then it was, my, my time has not yet come. Now he's saying, my hour is come. It's here now. And that's when he gathers all the disciples, and he pulls them in close to them, and he's kind of giving them the last teachings, the most important facts that they need to be left with. And then what we specifically saw in the transition in 18, and what we'll finish the chapter in, uh, is the move towards his passion ministry, the move towards his marching to the cross. There, as in we considered last week and the week before, um, he makes the statement about his hour, essentially, my hour is finished. It's completed. Uh, it's paid for. And so this whole time, this whole book has been pushing us up towards this moment at the cross where he can claim, my hour is come, my work is finished. And yet, even at that mo moment, we know that that statement is about the paying for salvation because we see the rest of the chapter being about Jesus not stopping working but continuing to work to then all the more testify to his authority as the Messiah. Now, most, if you're a fan of, of biographies, if you like to read about maybe um, later deceased important historical figures, you know that in reading all of those biographies, uh, they typically go through the whole life about the individual telling all the background, and then they get to the death, and then what? The book's over. And you talk about the burial and you move on. Um, this, the, the gospel writers get to write a very unique biography here. They don't have to stop uh, just at the death. They are going to continue to talk about, and what John is going to be doing here is he continue to bring attention to, um, to Jesus after uh, the cross in his resurrection, again, to point to his whole purpose of this whole book is that when you look at these facts, when you consider them rightly, you then respond rightly with belief. And so that's what we're uh, taking a look at this morning. Essentially, uh, Jesus has, has paid the price on the cross, and now he's going to prove the ability to give life because he himself was raised from death to life. As one uh, pastor a long time ago I heard put it, Jesus' death is like the check written to pay our debt, and Jesus' resurrection is the assuredness that the check has cleared the bank. And it's, in essence, it's the witness to say that was good enough. 
God wouldn't raise a blasphemer who claimed to be king. He's saying, yes, the authority really is on him. So with those things in mind, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand in reverency of God's word um, as we read scripture all together. Uh, we're going to start in, again, John chapter 20, and we're going to read from the ESV version all the way through verse 9. In verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and, the, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple whom reached the tomb first also went in, and when he saw, he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. These are the very words of our Lord. Y'all may be seated. Again, this is our fourth and final account of the resurrection that is found in the gospel writings. Again, all of the writers choose to emphasize different things. And we've already run into this with John, but John, again, here, provides a very brief uh, explanation. John tends to be on the briefer side, not providing as much detail as the other um, gospel writers are doing. Now, again, we've talked about this. This may be, as Chris pointed out, this may be because John is written later. So he's assuming you already know all of these facts from the other gospels. You've already read them, and so he's just giving his own perspective. Though what is certainly true is that, that he is trying to give his perspective He feels a divine call in his life to not leave this world, the church, without a witness, as him as eyewitness, and he's going to give an account uh, of what he thinks is kind of going on here. John, again, does this, I think, in brevity to make sure that we don't get distracted by the details, but we see the main purpose, the main highlight, which is Jesus, Jesus and all that he performed and did. Things that John doesn't mention we ran into, especially about the cross. All of the other gospel writers talk about how the women visit the tomb late on Friday. Um, uh, Both Matthew and Mark talk about Joseph rolling the stone over the tomb, um, whereas Matthew's the only one who gives even more details about uh, Pilate sealing the tomb and posting soldiers to guard it. Um, John tends to omit those things because what he wanted to highlight again was Jesus on the cross and Jesus dead at the point of the end of the cross. In the same vein, we're going to run into those same things with this resurrection story. Um, We're not going to get some of the other stuff like an angelic witness. Um, We're not going to uh, run into an earthquake that is happening when um, the angels show up. We're not going to run into the guards being knocked down. Uh, Even simply, John only refers to here Mary Magdalene, whereas we know he's doing so as a collective of a multitude of, of women because we know from the other gospel writers it's more than just her who are there at the tomb. But again, don't let this scare you. I love this about Scripture. I think it testifies to its authenticity. Um, uh, again, each of these has their own perspective. We had a, um, a judge in the, in the first service and uh, several lawyers, maybe too many lawyers. Um, I'm just kidding. That is just a, a cheap shot at stereotypes. We love lawyers. We're glad they're here. Lord knows they need to be here. Um, the, no, I'm just kidding. 
I couldn't resist. I don't know why. I didn't do that first service. Um, but we had, we had judges here, and even one of them came up after the service because I had made mention of, like, what happens if you're in a court of law and your witnesses stand forward and they all present the exact same order and same detailed account of what was going on? What do you assume? And he assumes, well, at best, they've all colluded beforehand. At best, they've all come together and made their stories right. But he's like, honestly, at worst, it's an indication that I, when I hear that, I immediately think they're probably lying or trying to skew something, or cover up something. And this is not what we get from our gospel writers. They all have this varied perspective because they all are trying to tell or emphasize a little bit different aspect of the story. My wife and I actually ran into this just a month ago when we got to meet up with a, um, a friend who was in a uh, missionary in Tokyo. And so, he's, so we were catching up all about our lives and we found ourselves together uh, walking through and telling our adoption story. Once again, and it'd been a while. We realized it had been a while since we both were together trying to tell this story. Um, and what we found is we found like there's moments that when I expected her to say this part and to talk about that, but she says this part because she's trying to emphasize this over here. And it's not that she was wrong. It's not that I was remembering something incorrectly. Is that we both were trying to tell the right story by emphasizing the parts that we were trying to do. Uh, and so again, I think what we see here is why these differing accounts of these gospel writers, they're, uh, they're not differing in what was actually going on, what they're differing in. It's just simply the perspective, the story that they're trying to tell. And John, again, more than any of the others, probably leaves out um, so much of these details because he does not want us to miss the theological significance of a resurrected Savior. This is why in 35 of chapter 19, last week we read, he describes himself as one who bore witness so that you may believe the same disciple in verse 8 that we read today sees the resurrection firsthand and believes. John is entirely concerned with presenting this eyewitness account so that we rightly respond with belief. Now, I don't want to minimize the, the eyewitness, the significance of the eyewitness in John, because we do need to see John raising up on this pedestal this huge argument about how the eyewitness stands as proof that the resurrected Lord uh, is, in fact, the Messiah. Now, the other gospel writers also mention a, a, the eyewitness accounts. Uh, Matthew 28, Luke 24, Mark 16, um, even Paul and Peter hinge on this. Paul, more specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about how important it is to the resurrection being the basis of our faith. He goes to write in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. This sounds very familiar, right? Um, this is John who's been writing this whole thing of saying uh, Jesus has died on the cross according to scriptures and now we're getting the playing out these, these different witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ happening again according to the witness of scriptures. D.A. Carson in his uh, commentary, The Gospel According to John, put it like this. For John, as for all of the early Christians... The resurrection of Jesus was the immutable fact upon which their faith was based. And their faith, in large part, depended on the testimony and the transformed behavior of those who'd actually seen the resurrected Jesus. Their master was not, in God's eyes, a condemned criminal. The resurrection proved that he was vindicated by God and therefore, nonetheless, then the Messiah, the Son of God, whom he claimed to be. 
This is what John is trying to do. He's trying to show us that God's seal of approval stands on Jesus as the Messiah through his resurrection. And this is what our task is for the next couple weeks. We'll rightly consider these eyewitness accounts, and we'll rightly consider how we should respond in belief. But for now, let's, let's jump back into verse 1, and let's break down the text a little bit. Back in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is John setting the scene, uh, setting the timing. All of the other disciples do this as well. He specifically mentions the day of the week. He calls it the first day of the week. Um, The Jews did not have names for the days of the week. They had numbers for them. Uh, The seventh day, one through seven, the seventh day when God rested is what they chose as their day of Sabbath. It's when the Jews worshiped. And what John's saying is the Sabbath has passed. And now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, um, we run into this resurrection account. Again, early church fathers, early church uh, history shows us that they put so significant the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the basis of their faith that when they decided to meet together to worship, they didn't meet on the Sabbath. Instead, they met on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. This is not just an Easter thing. This is, in fact, why we're all here even today. Every Sunday, we gather as a body and we're celebrating. The only reason we're here and have faith is because the resurrection is true. And so what we have here is we have this first day of the week. Um, we have Christ uh, who dies and is buried on the day of preparation on Friday before the Sabbath. He is in the grave the entire day of the Sabbath. And then now um, rising on the third day, this first day of the week. I do think it is kind of interesting that all the gospel writers agree and say that this is happening on the first day of the week. None of them here say like what Paul said which was that Jesus raised on the, on the third day after his death. They don't say now three days later, um, which would be kind of interesting because I think it would highlight what Paul is highlighting, which is clearly hearkening to Jesus' own words. That was the phrase he used. He said he was going to die and then be raised in three days. Remember back uh, earlier in John, in John 2, when we were talking about um, when Jesus' own words say, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it back up. Or in Matthew's account where we get Jesus talking about uh, Jonah in the, the, the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. In the same way, the Son of Man must be buried for three days, three nights before uh, in the earth before again being resurrected to life. I, I, some scholars say that this is probably, to try to explain this, they're saying that the first day of the week is simply a reference to a new life beginning. Um, I think it's probably more an indication that This is really why they don't mention what Paul mentions in Jesus' teaching is because here they're all making clear that they don't fully understand that yet. That's what we ran into when we read verses 8 and 9 is that they believed, but yet they don't fully understand all of the scripture to be fulfilled. I think them even not quoting Jesus' own words saying three days later sets the scene for the disciples, for John to say at the beginning of the story, I don't believe. I don't understand how these scriptures are being pointed together. I think this is also why John specifically mentions again darkness, the hour of which this comes. All the gospel writers tell us that it is upon this uh, dawning day uh, where it is day, but yet all, all the light hasn't been there and there's various forms of darkness presented. Uh, John uses again his imagery that he's repeated throughout this book of light and dark being a representation of those that understand in the light and are acting correctly, those who don't understand and aren't acting correctly in the dark. 
dark. And so I think he ties this in again, highlighting the darkness of this new dawn to point to the fact that not only he doesn't really understand all that's going on, neither does Mary, who arrives here in the dark, both literally and spiritually. So Mary doesn't believe in this resurrection at this point. Why do we come to that conclusion? It's because look back in verse 2. After seeing the stone moved, what does it say? So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, this pause, this is probably John. We've already covered that in, in previous sermons and times that we've run across this terminology. Uh, so she runs to Peter and John and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary thinks that here at the sign, just seeing the tomb opened up, the stone rolled away, her assumption is not in a resurrected Christ. She doesn't believe that yet. Her assumption in seeing that tomb opened up, that stone rolled away, is in fact just the sign that Jesus' body has been taken. This is why she runs back uh, to Peter and to John, and she tells them, she tells them that the stone has been moving and that his body has been taken. Jesus here is missing the first evidence of the resurrection because the stone isn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone is rolled away to let these eyewitnesses in. So when Mary sees this and thinks that the body is gone and she tells Peter and John, they run back to here to find this open tomb so that they may enter. Now, some people argue about what what does she mean by the they came and took them? Who is this they that they're referring to. I think most people, and I agree with it, most people think that this is, um, that she's thinking that some grave robbers have come in. That people have, have come in, have opened up the tomb, and have stolen Jesus' bodies and all the things because they were robbing the grave. This apparently was a, uh, a known problem, such an epidemic at the time that uh, C.K. Barrett in his commentary cites that uh, there's even, in the same time, the Emperor Claudius makes a decree Emperor Claudius reigns right around the same event shortly after, where he makes it a capital offense to destroy tombs, remove bodies, or displace the stealing, sealing stones or other stones. So apparently this was a big issue of the day. So Mary sees this rolled away and she thinks, just like all the other stones rolled away from graves, grave robbers did it, they've taken the body. But it may not be just that. It may also be that, that she's worried that the temple authorities have come in and have taken the body, Right? This is exactly where all the disciples are. They're cowering in a room. They're scared. They're hidden because they know that these angered temple authorities are not just satisfied with the death of Jesus. They're still raging. And so they're thinking they're, after, they're out to get us as well. So they're hiding, hiding in a corner. And then when Mary bursts in and says that they have taken their body, maybe their minds first go to these temple authorities. And they think it's, well, it's at least safe for us to go check this out because the temple authorities are with Jesus' body somewhere. So we can come out of hiding to figure out if Mary's telling the truth here. Maybe that's the case. But either way, whatever it is, if it's the temple authorities or whether it's uh, tomb uh, robbers, grave robbers, Whatever it is, uh, what we do know here is that um, John is trying to present this picture through him and through Peter as this eyewitness. And so these disciples go running. Look down, verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think this is a funny detail. I don't know if this is like a humble brag of John just sneaking it in there of like, hey, we were running together, but... I got there first. I'm the fast one. 
I don't know. I don't think so. But uh, also, I want to make mention of this. I don't think this is, has any allegory. Maybe you grew up hearing um, uh, the illusion that, uh, that this, is, this is some kind of characteristic of the Gentile church and the Jewish church, that the, both, uh, that the Jewish church gets kind of a head start out there, but the Gentile, Gentile church reaches there, and that's played out through these characters. I, I really don't find much basis for that at all. Because again, I don't think John's trying to distract us with any external, extraneous details. What he's trying to point here is he's simply saying that, uh, that this body is gone and that we were eyewitnesses. They run in on the scene to show that they're the eyewitnesses and that they weren't there to remove the body. They're now joining in on the scene. That's what he's highlighting here. John then goes on to remark a little bit about his hesitation or his shyness. Look down in verse 5. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. It's not abundantly clear of why John here pauses, why he stops at the entrance. Um, it may be just purely pragmatic. He's been running the whole time. He gets the entrance. Now he's got to catch his breath. And so he's stooping over already. So he's kind of already looking in. And so he can kind of see the scene as he's catching his breath. I, I don't know. Maybe it's um, that he's putting pause. He's actually thinking, hang on a second. My actions were all just kind of go, 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 go. Maybe I need to stop and think, is this the right thing to bust into this grave? Um, but whatever it is, what we do go, get is, is uh, Peter's personality clearly presented here because there is no stopping to think before acting. Peter catches up and what does he do? Bam, straight on into the grave. So he runs in, no hesitation. Verse six, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, a lot, again, of speculation and sermonizing has gone on to the importance of the position of these cloths. And uh, for the sake of brevity and time, I'm not going to go into all of those this morning because, again, we've already addressed it. I think John's just trying to get us to see the facts, the simple facts for what is there. The simple fact that he's trying to present is there are these linen cloths, the face cloth and the body cloth, and they're in a specific position that are there. John is highlighting again this evidence to what credits them as an eyewitness and merits us to respond with belief as they themselves respond to belief. He, he continues to talk about this belief again, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, maybe he is bragging, maybe he is running into, I don't know why he'd bring it up twice. Um, Maybe we'll get to heaven and he'll be like, hi, I'm John. I'm the one he Jesus loved. I'm the one faster than Peter. You should come hang out with me. Don't go talk to him yet. Come hear my story first. I don't know. That would be fascinating. But the other disciple reached the tomb first, also went in, and then, and he saw and believed. Sight of this leads to his belief. It is clear what they saw. Nobody really argues about what they saw. They presented that. We saw the burial linens, and now we believe. Some postulate and question what he is believing here, what he, John, and maybe even Peter, by extension, are, are believing in. Some won't say that he believes in the resurrection. They think that, they're, that this reference is only believing in Mary's account, that the body was stolen. I give it, there's some merit here, um, because again, uh, what we have is we have Mary coming over, presenting to these guys that the body is stolen, them rushing to the tomb, not seeing the body there, so they conclude Mary is right. We believe Mary, that the body was stolen. 
A lot of this is those who cite this look to why it continues in verse 9. Even though there's a hard punctuation mark here in the ESV, this is all the original one, one statement altogether in the original language, which goes on to say that they don't yet understand the scriptures. They don't understand all that must be fulfilled in his resurrection. I tend to not go with that leaning. I think that here, Peter, and again, I mean, John at least, and maybe by extension, Peter, are seeing the resurrection Jesus, seeing at least the evidence that Jesus has resurrected, and they are responding with belief. But why John continues his gospel, continues through the rest of the chapter, and give more accounts of eyewitnesses and more accounts of Jesus coming back is because he wants to highlight not just the abundance of these eyewitnesses as a testimony to each other, but he also wants to highlight the graciousness of the Lord to come back to them, to not only go and say, yes, you are right for believing in my resurrection, but take comfort because with me and me coming back, I'm going to give you all things. You're now going to understand all scriptures, all of my words that were pointed towards my death and resurrection, all of the Old Testament that was pointed towards the death and the resurrection of the cross. I'm going to give you understanding to all of those things. And so I think this is like kind of hearkening back to our Roman centurion. I believe, help my unbelief, I think this is more likely um, what, what John is communicating is saying that he is seeing the evidence of the resurrected Jesus and he has no choice but to believe that Jesus has resurrected. And yet, in that, he knows he hasn't fully grasped the why, the plan leading up to now and the plan going forward where everything is going to hinge on this resurrection. Why I believe that they, um, why I'm convinced that they believe in the resurrection of Jesus is again because of what they clearly see. They see these linen cloths. That's why John mentions them. That's why he says what he saw and then he believes. Because I think John's, in mentioning that there were linen cloths there, I think dispels any notion that there were grave robbers who were at fault here. The grave robbers, if they were there, one of two things. One, they would have entered into the tomb and would have taken the entire body of Jesus still wrapped up in all of his linen cloths. Pragmatically, this is because the way that they would preserve bodies, well, they're not preserving, the way that they would cover or mask bodies is after they had passed away, they would wrap them in linen. And we know from uh, other accounts that this is fine linen. This is not cheap stuff. Joseph was an affluent man. This is fine linen. linen, And they would pack with spices. This is the 75 pounds Nicodemus brought. They would wrap and then pack with spices, wrap some more, pack with spices, wrap, pack with spices, and they'd keep doing this until they kind of got this nice cylindrical round shape entombed in this body, covered in all these layers of spices. And then over their head, they would have a facial cloth, a linen a cloth for the face. This is the same term that's used back uh, in Lazarus' story. Uh, this was a cloth that was rolled or folded and tied around their jaw to the top of their head to keep the body's um, mouth from opening in their moving and in the process of burial. This is all, again, according to uh, the Jewish ritualistic practices of burying a body. And so we have them mentioning these cloths here uh, in a very specific way because what they both see upon entering is they don't walk in and they see the body, cat, the body wrapping in this cylindrical uh, shape. What they see is that they're in the same place lying flat. They're not unraveled. They're not thrown aside. This is why they mentioned the facial cloth, not just like the grave robbers came in and unwrapped it and threw it all aside. Um, this is saying that the body is flat and even the facial cloth that was rolled and turned is lying separate and in place where his head would have been. 
they're making abundantly clear that there's not robbers who've come in and done this. There's not even authorities who have done this because authorities could not have removed the body and left it in this place where the linens lay. What, they're, what they are realizing in this moment is that uh, the Savior, Jesus, has, who was wrapped in these cloths and put down, laid to rest in this tomb, has now gone off into glory, returned in a new spiritual body that has shown his power and demonstration by passing through these linen cloths without disturbing them. Again, we'll see this later. This, is Jesus, this isn't a surprise in the story. Jesus will enter into rooms with locked doors. Apparently, Jesus has no problem getting in or passing through things. And I think this is what the disciples are highlighting. They're hiding, highlighting that there's no other explanation. This is what we saw, and there's no other explanation that we can say except Jesus is raised. Jesus is Messiah. And yet, again, they don't fully understand this. This is what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks is seeing their reasoning of all getting to get the privilege to see all these scriptures that were pointing to the fact that not just the death of Christ was predicted, but also the, um, the raising of Christ was predicted, both his words and all of scripture. But this is what we get at this end of this section is we have John wanting us to see this logical conclusion of their eyewitness account of an empty tomb pointing to nothing else than the simple fact that Jesus is resurrected, that God is sealing him with the stamp of authority saying the, pay, the price you paid was in fact good enough. You now have the power over life and granting him life as he is raised from the dead. So as we close our time together, I would ask in a closing question, what have you seen? When you look at this, what, do you, what have you seen in this process? We have what the disciples have seen when they've seen the evidence for the resurrected Jesus. We know the outcome that they're coming to. Specifically here, John is saying that he saw and believed. I think that the disciples in just this one evidence, even now, come to the right understanding that the appropriate response is belief in Jesus. There's really no good reason to think that these guys were making the story up. I mean, they gained nothing favorable from such a lie if they were telling this and fabricating all this, um, they're, they're not going to gain any money. They're not going to gain any power. They're not going to gain any position or prestige, so to say, that these, these guys, in fact, are only gaining, bringing upon themselves the opposite. By them presenting this story, they know that they are only welcoming in persecution. They're only welcoming in hardship, ultimately only welcoming in even death, as the majority of them took this to their, their deaths, to their grave. And I think as Chris pointed out a couple of weeks ago during Easter Sunday, this in and of itself is a good, rational thing for us to understand that these men who are willing to take this fact all the way to themselves to be, uh, to be brutally murdered, sometimes even, as church tradition says, even crucified themselves uh, to the fact that they would say, we don't recant any of the eyewitness that we say, we're willing to take this truth all the way to our deaths. Uh, that is probably an assuredness. This is... This is a true thing. Um, there's not a lot of people who would be willing to take a falsehood all the way to the point of death. Even again, you may think, well, if it, it would make sense if they would trade in that falsehood now, knowing that they may die, but they get something temporarily that benefits them. They get no temporal blessing. Again, there's nothing that benefits them. So it's very unlikely for us to, to give credit to any other theory that explains the eyewitness in another way that doesn't point to Jesus as resurrected. 
Again, I think even the onus is found on the changed behavior or merit of the disciples once they see this reality. If we find the disciples here afraid and cowering and scared of what these Jewish authorities are going to do to them, I think it's appropriate for question, us to ask the question, how do these people hidden in fear now suddenly arrive weeks later, not inside hidden, but out on the streets proclaiming the Lord has risen? They obviously are convinced of this. I'd say like this, even if you this morning are thinking that you didn't, you're like, I don't buy into this resurrection thing. I don't think it really was a historical event or happened. The onus really then is back on you to carry the next argument of saying, well, then how do you explain these men's radical transformation into something that wouldn't benefit them at all in this life with a lie? And so we see this again, this, this resurrection, taking, transforming these men from a debilitating fear to a daring faith. And I think it is an appropriate thing for us to realize that the belief of any anti-resurrection theory theories requires a far-stretching faith that wants to point to illogical facts and come to a conclusion that is contrary to the rational one, which is what we find here in Scripture, that our faith is backed even with a rationality to it, the resurrected Jesus. So again, I back up to our question, what have you seen? That's what the disciples have clearly seen, and they have believed. Maybe it is that you are now this morning finally coming to grips with your doubt over the resurrection and maybe this was one little chink in your armor or link in a chain that leads you to understand uh, that, the, that once faced with the facts, Jesus really has been resurrected. Um, he is the one who can give the forgiveness of sins and also has the ability to give you life, an abundant life in return. And maybe you've never put your faith or asked Jesus to do that, that this, today is the moment that you do so. That you say, yes, Jesus, I believe you have the power to take away my sins, and I want the life. Lord, will you grant me that life? If that is you today, then put your faith in Jesus today. There's no waiting for another witness. The eyewitness is here. Or perhaps you stand here reminded, having already put your faith in Jesus, reminded of the transforming power in a once dead and now risen Savior. A power that was so great that it took these disciples from this debilitating uh, debilitating state of fear and now into a daring state of faith. And maybe during this time of invitation, you need to pray, as I've been dealing with all week, of, Lord, wrestle it in within me. What is it that I'm still holding on that doesn't match up to you as a, as a risen Lord? What are the things that I still have a fearful faith about that, I, that doesn't have any place in the acknowledgement of you as the true risen Lord and Savior? Maybe this is a time that you want to you pray. Or maybe if you come to either one of those conclusions, maybe as you reflect on this, you realize, I don't want to really live out this faith, new faith or established faith alone, and I really need a church to surround me and encourage me through that. If you've gone through the Welcome Home team or if you want to make it known that you want to start the process of church membership, um, now could be the time uh, to, re to respond. Whatever it is and however it is and you need to respond, whether it's standing, whether it's kneeling, whether it's joining our faithful members in the corner who are willing to pray with you, coming up front, uh, whatever it is and however you need to respond, this is the time that you can do so.